morning, everybody. In case you're wondering why I'm not wearing my holy jeans today. Um, it's not because I'm preaching, it's because they're dirty. So, anyway. If you get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 48 here soon. Matthew 5, 33 to 48. If I can't find it, we know we're in trouble. Let's see. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you so much for all that you've done. God, we ask that we would be a people that would be known by our love. Would you help us? We're so thankful that we know we're Christians by your love for us, the great work of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die on behalf of us, broken, sinful people. We are so thankful, and Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak through me, and that we would really hear Jesus' words for what they are today. God, I pray that you would uh, help us to not make excuses or look for all kinds of exceptions, but that you would speak, that we would receive the words of Jesus as they are, and that you would help us to apply them in the places we need to apply them today. Thank you for your authority, so we submit to it now and ask for your help. In Jesus' name. Well, opinions, opinions, we are saturated with them. Your favorite news pundit is paid to have as many possible with as much polarization as possible. Your Facebook feed is probably composed with all of your friends or maybe not so much friends' uh, latest outrage and opinion. Your own family likely has all kinds of different opinions about a whole host of controversial subjects. I was thinking back after the Easter egg hunt, you know, if you name-dropped Trump or Cruz or Clinton or Sanders, you may have got an egg to the head um, based on your opinion. It's not only the world around us that's full of opinions, but you and I in ourselves, each one of us has opinions too. And our culture preaches that these ones that reside inside of us are the only ones that matter anyway. Mark Sayers, an Australian pastor and contemporary culture critic, points out that in a Western post-Christian society, we've moved on from any notion of the authority of a bunch of gods or the authority of the Judeo-Christian scriptures and that, quote, The only authority left is the authority of the self. The Oprah Winfrey Network's Twitter account proclaimed the following sentiment not too long ago. In a world full of people and opinions, it's most important to know what's best for you, all caps, and stay true to that, end quote. According to this way of looking at the world, while everyone else just has opinions, you get to be your own authority. You get to dictate the things that are true for you, that are going to make you happy, that are going to give you a sense of personal fulfillment. Everything else is heresy. So what Jesus says about series that we've been going through as a church assumes a different kind of authority. As we've been considering what Jesus says about a number of issues in the Sermon on the Mount, he is rejecting rejecting our belief as a culture. He's not giving his opinions in the Sermon on the Mount to the subjects he raises. He's not offering us a bunch of perspectives and ideas that may be possible for us to believe. He is claiming the authority that he has the authority. He defines the issues to which he speaks. He does this repetitively by saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He uses this contrast about six times in Matthew chapter 5 in order to speak to various hot-button issues of the day. He summarizes a a religious or an ethical teaching of the day, or 
Sometimes he quotes directly from the Old Testament scriptures, the law of God, and he follows it up with, but I say to you. So Jesus is saying to the crowds that his authority is higher than the religious leaders and scholars of his day, and he pushes it even farther by implicitly showing that he carries divine authority to interpret the scriptures. So he is also announcing to us today, he's announcing to our culture that what I say to you should be what determines your opinions. The inner court of the self that determines what's right or wrong or fulfilling for you is not the highest court. He is. Jesus is. He's the king. As we've seen, he's not afraid to be controversial or to cut to the chase. He's called anger, murder. He's called sexual lust, adultery. He's associated many of our grounds for divorce as leading to adultery. So Jesus is meddling with our most personal of choices and decisions, whether they're inward or outward, and he's confronting them head on. Thinking if you and I talked like this, we would be acting like that opinionated uncle at Easter dinner that no one wants to get cornered by in the kitchen. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord of the world. Jesus is the king of the kingdom that he is bringing. Another thing that we're going to continue to see in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is not concerned with our outward appearances. He's not concerned with our religiosity, with our spirituality. External law-keeping and outward spiritual practices don't mean much to him. He will not be fooled by my religious or Christian facades. So he doesn't take it easy on us or make the law easier to keep. He's concerned about a higher level of righteousness, about one that proceeds from our hearts. His words have revealed our sinfulness, our inadequacies. They've made us desperate as he calls us to a way of life beyond anything we can work up within ourselves. So he's not offering a new code of external laws, but he's offering an alternative way to live, to live from a renewed heart that God alone can give. Our passage at hand today is a bit long. We're going to finish chapter 5 and look at three paragraphs. In the first paragraph, Jesus addresses how we speak, especially when it comes to making oaths. In the second paragraph, he addresses how we respond to being hurt or insulted, how we view our rights and possessions, how we respond to the needy. And he does it in the context of public issues like legal and political affairs. In the last paragraph, he tackles how we should respond to our enemies. So again, none of these issues are without controversy, and they definitely, definitely need to have a whole lot more nuance than I can give them today. One thing you'll notice is that Jesus doesn't seem too concerned, though, about attending to our excuses, our exception clauses that we'd like to push back a bit on his plain statement. To us. We know he can give exceptions because he's given them before. He gave an exception in the case of adultery, but for some reason, he doesn't take the time to answer all of our objections here, nor give us a bunch of practical advice about what to do in every single scenario that's going to come up in our lives. It's as if he wants his radical demands to land on us with extraordinary force. As I was Preparing the sermon uh, this past week, I was just thinking that, you know, my sermon, you know, unless a few weeks before, maybe Alan's sermon on divorce was probably more controversial, but I don't think so. I think the issues dealt with here are a bit more combustible um, to us. Speaking of a few of these verses, John Piper said it this way. Now these, or excuse me, now those are some of the most difficult, controversial, radical demands Jesus ever put on the world, and they are real. They are in the Bible. We should live like this. His words raise serious questions. End quote. So, 
Let's jump in. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. We're going to look at that first paragraph. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So he addresses how we speak, specifically in the oaths we make. I think this relates to the section right before on marriage and divorce. Marriage is made up of the vows a man and a woman make before God and people to bind them to covenant love. So his movement to oaths is probably not an accident. Look at verse 33. Rather than reciting directly from the law, Jesus is summarizing the Old Testament Scripture's instruction that we should not break the oaths we should not break the oaths we make. Other scriptures, like Ecclesiastes, reinforce how sacred a vow, an oath was, and the sober importance of keeping them. Ecclesiastes 5.4 When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. But notice, Jesus doesn't reinforce the importance of keeping oaths in verse 34. He tells us not to make them. Do not take an oath at all. So Jesus isn't reminding his hearers to do what they swore to do, but at least on the surface, he's telling them not to swear at all. Not by heaven, not by earth, not by Jerusalem, not on yourself. It's likely that many who were listening in that day were swearing by other sacred or personal things to avoid profaning God's name and swearing directly by Him. They didn't want to violate Leviticus 19.12, which said, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So, they put in a sacred substitute for God's name. They wanted to find a loophole to make them feel religious. But Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He shows them that all the other things they're swearing by are in God's domain anyway. They're already in God's domain. So when you swear by something he rules, you've called him as a witness anyway. He rules heaven. He made earth. He made prophecies to Jerusalem. He knows the hairs on your head better than you do. So all the things we tend to swear by are in reference to God and outside of our control. So why shouldn't we swear by these things? Because God rules them all. And you have zero control over the things you swear by. So we don't have to cross our hearts, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Jesus prefers something simple. Dr. Seuss, simple. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. You say yes, do it. You say no, don't do it. Jesus is after truthfulness. You don't need to add extra layers of weight, like vows, on your poor mom's grave. Keep it simple. Jesus is calling us to live the kind of life that every time we say yes to something that has the equivalent power as an oath. Jesus gives another reason why we shouldn't make oaths in verse 37. Because it's evil. Some translations say it's from the evil one. So Jesus is getting serious. And he's getting serious because he's serious about the truth. He's serious about the truth. And he's not a fan of Satan. While truthfulness mimics Jesus' character, untruthfulness mimics the father of lies. So Jesus' desire for us is that we always speak honestly and truthfully.
truthfully. We don't need to make additional promises to give extra weight to our truthfulness. But, is there ever a place for oaths? This is complicated. How to apply Jesus' words is debated throughout church history. It's also very political. One commentator said, taking it seriously can make disciples politically salty. How does it line up? How does it line up with state matters, with legal matters, and solemn occasions? Some say Jesus is dealing with frivolous speaking and not taking into account those rare times where a solemn oath would be needed. Even Jesus, kind of, sort of, but not really, got close to making an oath at the end of his life. In Hebrews, God himself is said to make an oath to encourage his people. So if God does it, if he's holy... It's likely there are occasions where we can do it. But again, we need to wrestle with these words. When he said, not at all, did he mean rarely? Sometimes, only on solemn occasions. It's interesting that Jesus' own brother James took his words pretty literally. In James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. But above all, my brothers, condemnation its a big deal. So, wherever you come down, however you apply this, know that Jesus takes what you say. Jesus takes truthfulness very seriously. Next paragraph, Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is quoting three separate verses in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy on the law of retribution and the principle that the punishment should fit the crime. I like to think of this as the but he did it first standard. If you're a parent, you've heard this a hundred times. You're minding your own business, you're sipping your coffee. Reading the word, like a good Christian parent, and you hear one of your kids yell, Ow! Ow! in the other room. And then your ears hear a hand or a foot connect to some body part. You walk in, there's tears going everywhere. One child takes off running, the other one is laying on the floor. So you start investigating, you start asking questions, and usually one of the first things out of someone's mouth is, but he did it first. But she did it first. That's my justification, Dad. They don't usually say that, but that's what they're saying. And so whether we're 4 or 74, all of us operate this way. When we get hurt, we hurt back. We retaliate. We defend our right to react, to self-protect, for self-defense. This is one of the impulses the human condition that Jesus is dealing with here. And Jesus gives four illustrations to unpack what he has to say about this principle. And interpreting what he has to say, again, he's been quite controversial. What makes it controversial is how do we separate the public from the private? Again, how do we separate functions of state from functions as a citizen? And what Jesus is addressing here. And one problem that I see with making a complete separation from the two is that Jesus is getting legal and political here. His statements are not politically or legally neutral. Again, I can't get it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. can't tease out all the implications, but I want us to look at them briefly. Before Jesus gets to his four illustrations, he says eight words in verse 39 that are enough to make our skin crawl. Do not resist the one. Shocking? 
produces millions of questions. But before you argue with him, fear him. Let his words sink in. The least, Jesus is saying, is don't sink to the level of the evil aggressor. Act differently. Operate according to a different set of values. And notice that he is naming what they do as evil. He is saying it is evil. The kind of people that do these kinds of things, that engage in insult, exploitation, and oppression, are evil. first practical illustration he gives is turning the other cheek. So in the ancient world, to take a backhanded slap to the face, not only stung, but was extremely insulting. So much so that a person who did this could be It was an attack on a person's honor, not just their face. This was a much bigger deal in a shame, honor-driven culture than in ours. The concern is social shame. That's the the highest concern, more than just the physical pain from somebody striking. I think it probably has more to do with why you would take someone to a duel in early America than some fight at a sports bar after watching football. So I think framing this in this context is helpful. Jesus isn't advocating for the right of someone to physically assault you while you just sit there and sit. He isn't saying take a stand and ignore it. His point is that when you, are insu- when you are insulted, don't insult back. When someone embarrasses you, don't look to return the favor. Human honor. Our own honor is not to be our highest value. God's honor, His call on our lives is our value. So be less concerned with your right to save face. When someone shames you, confront their aggression by sacrificially turning the other cheek. This is what Christian counselor Dan Allender calls shrewd sacrifice. Shrewd sacrifice. When you turn the other cheek, you turn their intent to harm, to intimidate, and control you back on its head. It provokes them to look at themselves experience their own sense of sinfulness and shame. Wow, this is a thing. Turn the other cheek. All of a sudden, a recognition of what they have done. In verse 40, Jesus takes up another illustration and addresses how his followers should respond to those who would take their clothes through legal means. Basically says, if someone takes your t-shirt, give them your warm coat too. And this was a big deal because as one scholar pointed out, the Old Testament law affirmed that having a tunic was like an inalienable right. It was a poor person's key possession for warmth on a cold night. And the Old Testament law protected even creditors from taking it from a debtor. So this was radical because the common person wouldn't have had wouldn't have had a big closet like we have back at the four bedroom house. For many, this was everything. They'd be naked without their tunic. Jesus may be intentionally using exaggeration to make a point. He's calling us to have a, again a totally different value system from the world as the first illustration showed us that we shouldn't value our own honor like the world does, this one is saying you shouldn't value your own possessions like the world does. If you get sued, be less prone to assert your basic rights or countersue, but give to your enemy. So Jesus pushes the limits and confronts our materialism and possessions. And says that if someone tries to take your possession through legal means, give them your most prized possession. Your most base possession. Coat to keep you warm at night. Again, we're left with questions about courts. Whether Christians should sue. How they should respond when sued. Paul takes this issue up in one of his letters. Scripture definitely has more to say. So again, I'm not trying to tell you what to do in a given situation, but I don't think there is any question that as Americans, we tend to value our possessions and demand our rights far more than we do. Christians. 
Verse 41, Jesus moves from how the crowd should respond to social insults and legally getting sued to how they should respond politically to military Roman occupiers who demand that they carry their luggage. Jesus says, if a Roman soldier forces you, and again, look at the text, look at the word, forces. He forces you to carry his bags, offer to do it further Now, again, that's a huge deal for Jesus to say that. Remember, many were looking for the promised Messiah that many of them believed would overthrow Rome. Jesus is saying, go ahead and pack their equipment around, do what they force you to do, and basically volunteer for another lap. It's politically charged because it was anti-zealot and against those who wanted a revolution against the Romans. So again, Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom than what we expect. It's interesting, isn't it, how countercultural Jesus is even to us. We live in wonderful freedom. I'm so thankful to live in America. We don't experience what it must be like to live with an occupying force around. Yet here we have people under Roman rule where the oppressor is forcing someone to walk a mile. Jesus is good with it. We Americans spark revolution. We don't submit to an outsider. We naturally want to assert our rights. We think, that isn't very Bill of Rights of you, Jesus. There's not any way I'm walking another mile. I think our motto tends to be, if you insult me, I'm going to insult you back. If you try to take from me or sue me, I'm going to hire the best lawyer. You're not going to get a penny, a cent. There's no way I'm going to walk one mile, let alone two, for anyone who oppresses me. No one will force me to do anything. I think that's our natural, that's our gut level response. Again, not sure how to work through all the practical issues here. I'm not a pacifist, but I do think Jesus is poking a bit in places we would rather him not poke, and he's being way more politically charged than you. The context is not just personal, personal relationships. There's legal context here. There's political context. Look at the fourth illustration Jesus gives. This could be the most immediately practical. We may not have been insulted lately, or slapped, or sued, or stopped by a Roman guard, but Jesus is going big right here. In verse 41, he tells us to give to those who beg and loan to those who ask. Sentence is clear. Sentence is concise. Sentence is uncomfortable. Again, we prefer more nuance. We jump right to our excuses. Yeah, but what if the transient is just going to buy booze? shouldn't give in, right? I've worked hard for my money. They're lazy. Jesus isn't saying we should give to those who don't deserve it. Jesus is telling us here to give liberally, not conservatively. To give liberally without discrimination and without a desire for payback. Read the verse. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We're done with those four illustrations. Take a deep breath. I think Jesus uses hyperbole. Jesus uses exaggeration in the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned in the Sermon on Sexual Lust, I don't believe he was literally calling us to dismember body parts to fight lust. But his exaggerations are meant to call us to a more radical lifestyle than we can. Instead of being meant to make us exempt from his statement, not using exaggeration that way. Generally, our problem is not that we emphasize his call on our lives too much but too little. I think this is probably because we prefer 
Western Americanized Jesus more than the kingdom Jesus. But let's ignore all the legal and political and foreign policy, pacifism, just war theory stuff. That's another sermon. What we need to see is that Jesus is taking on a universal problem in every human heart. To always insist upon our rights. To always be looked down on. But he did it first. He's focusing on what kingdom ethics look like. It's the default of your heart and mind to do that, to say that. He did it first. We want to run to an excuse to escape what Jesus is saying. And when we do that, we're probably doing something wrong with his word. So be careful that all the exceptions you want to make don't negate everything he does. That's the second Feel the without qualifications call that Jesus is making on us, and then ask the Holy Spirit to help you to respond with more grace than retaliation, to be more willing to sacrifice than to accumulate, to be more willing to lay down your rights than demand them, to be more generous, not less. As followers of Jesus, we're called to a different posture than that of the world. We're to operate according to the culture of his kingdom first before we apply the cultural norms of whatever culture we find ourselves in. Our allegiance is to King Jesus. Ultimately, not America or our own self again. Matthew five forty three to 48. Next paragraph. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus again says, you've heard that it was said, but this time, the first part is in the Old Testament, while the second part is not. The command to love your neighbor is one of the highest commands in all of Scripture. Jesus said that. But what about the hate part? Where did the... Where'd the hate part come from? Well, there are texts in the Old Testament like the Psalms that speak of hatred for enemies. But there are also many Old Testament scriptures in the first five books of the Bible that call for great love for foreigners, for strangers, for aliens. So apparently, Jesus was confronting some kind of teaching tradition that was saying it was okay to hate. And Jesus calls for the exact opposite. This is what he's been doing in the previous section on non-retaliation. He commands us to love our neighbors and our enemies. And in fact, when Jesus was asked the question, who is our neighbor in the Gospels, he responded with the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, where he put enemies in the same category as believers. So according to Jesus, everyone is your neighbor, whether they're friend, whether they're foe, and everyone Love. Love is complicated. It's a complicated word. You know, we use it to define our attachment to candy bars, to kids. We usually mean something like varied levels of emotional warmth and connectedness toward someone, toward something. We also treat it as a verb. Love acts. Love practically seeks the good of the other. And sometimes we try to separate these two things. We try to separate emotional attachment from actual action. Is Jesus allowing us this separation? Did Jesus just mean for us to tolerate our enemies, love them less? Did he only want us to do something practically good for them, but not to experience any emotional warmth toward them? The answer is no. The word for love that Jesus uses is one that is both emotion and action. So his call for us to love everyone from our hearts and with our Again, this is impossible. This is even scandalous. Why? Why, Jesus? Why? Why go this far? You're being extreme. 
he is. He's calling us to an extreme countercultural lifestyle. Questions Jesus asks in verses 44, excuse me, 46 and 47 assume this. We are to engage in loving acts that those in our culture, our political party, our relational networks will find surprising. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was confronting white passivity toward racial injustice, said it like this. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Are you, am I, are we as a church willing to be extremists in enemy love? Enemy lines can be drawn anywhere in our relationships, in our private and public spheres. We can draw them socially, politically, racially, economically, religiously. We can draw them between friends. We can draw them in families. Jesus is reminding us that we are not primarily citizens of an earthly kingdom, state, or culture. But again, our allegiance is to him. So, some questions. In a heated political season, how do you respond to those who are of another political persuasion? How do we respond to Muslims? You fear them more than you love them. Are you spending more emotional energy toward keeping certain people out of the country or out of office than bringing people into your relationship with Jesus? When you look at the potential loss of religious freedom, when we look at rising persecution, does more fear and anger brim in our heart toward those who would dare take it from us? Those who would perpetrate it, then prayer would come from our lips for them? Is your political party membership and values more important than your membership and values in the body of Christ? Do you rant on Facebook for everyone to see more than you pray when no one sees? These and many more are the questions we need to answer. Enemies also reside in our own homes. Your enemy, to varying degrees and circumstances, could be your husband or your wife at different times. How do you respond to your spouse when you feel like he or she is your enemy? Thinking, how many marriages would be saved if the way we responded to wrong was filled with love, prayer, and blessing instead of retaliation? He was very rude this morning. I'm going to pray for him. He didn't handle that well. I won't be passive aggressive. I'm going to bless you. My love language hasn't been spoken lately, but I'm going to speak his, I'm going to speak hers anyway. Enemy love would be a great subject for a marriage counselor. But how? How do we get our hearts to love instead of what I do? Jesus is reminding us that one form of enemy love begins with prayer. Pray. We can't pray for someone from our hearts. We probably won't be ready to bless them. Can we? All of us have been hurt, have been harmed, have been hurt by others. And I think Jesus would ask you to start loving those who've hurt you in the last Sometimes that's all we can do. In more dangerous situations, you can't or should not be around those who hurt you. There are certain conditions where it's loving to cut off all access to those who hurt us. We don't allow a woman to be beaten by her husband. We don't allow children to be sexually abused by a parent or guardian. Loving our enemies does not mean allowing perpetrators to have free reign in our families or churches as if it's some kind of weird grace thing. We're called to stand up for injustice. We're called to help the helpless. But while enemy love does not always mean the same access to a relationship, it does mean In less serious situations, there are boundaries that need to be set up in families and friends, in church and work relationships. Loving your enemies doesn't mean spending the same amount of time and giving the same amount of access to everyone in your life, but it does mean loving everyone without exception. It seems to me that verse 45 shows us the most godlike attribute we can have. 
we were to ask Jesus why we have to love our enemies, I think he'd answer because the Father loves us. The primary way we demonstrate the character of God and the love of the Father is when we love those who harm us and hate us. This is what God does. Our Heavenly Father, Jesus says, does good to the, to the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. He lets the sun heat drug dealers' plants. He permits adulterers to laugh and jump in mud puddles in a rainstorm with their kids when they're destroying their family. He lets promise breakers, vindictive, evil for evil retaliators, materialistic tightwads, and enemy haters like all of us breathe. But not just breathe, in love, he breathes his last. He gives his life for his enemies. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So God reconciles our enemies through the work of His Son. The hostility we had toward Him and that He had toward us as sinners are extinguished by the death of Jesus. We are met with wholehearted reconciliation and intimacy to the Father. So we imitate the great love and character of God when we love our enemies and do good for those who harm us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When you confront your enemy, think first of all about your own enmity with God and about God's compassion toward you. Don't begin where all of us naturally start. Dreaming inventing strategies to how to respond, but instead start with meditating on God's compassion. He did not give us the wrath of being condemned. He gave us the grace of being Start Jesus also wants us to recognize that external law-keeping is not the aim of the Christian life. He's after something higher, something deeper. Our goal is not following rules. He wants passionate disciples, not stingy bookkeepers. His desire is that we model the Father. So our standard is the Father, not the law. We are imagers of God. I think this is what verse 48 is referring to. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father. So what in the world do we do with all these How do we imitate the Father? I'm an amateur. Trying to figure out how to apply what he said. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not simply come to tell us what to do. He's not just trying to get up on a soapbox and demonstrate his authority by telling us stuff. But his authority is shown when he lays down his life and dies. When he's nailed to a cross. He's not only the authoritative teacher, he's the suffering Savior. He does more than call us to follow him in what he says. He calls us to trust him for who he is, for what he does. He's the one who does not just make demands about speaking the truth, about keeping promises, about retaliating or giving to the poor, loving our enemies. But he does all these things. He lays down his life for us. Jesus is the truth. Jesus does what He says, Jesus never lies. His yes is always yes. His no is always no. He's the one in whom all the promises of God are yes. Jesus suffers without ever retaliating. He's lied about, insulted, slapped in the face. He was stripped naked. He was publicly shamed by hanging on a tree for men and women to see. He was a victim of injustice, even though he did only justice and mercy. He laid down his right as the Son of God. He came as a servant to die as a criminal. He gave himself for the poor in their spiritual poverty, even though the poor never asked him, so that they might be rich. He did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the suffering servant. As we read earlier, the prophet Isaiah tells us that in all of these undeserved sufferings, he opened not his mouth. Quote, he was oppressed 
He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Except he opened his mouth to pray. Forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not. Jesus went to the cross as the only innocent man who ever lived to die for wicked men and women who rebelled against God and deserved death. The righteous one gives his righteousness to any unrighteous person who trusts him. Jesus loved his enemies wholeheartedly. His enemy love makes enemies afraid. This is the greatest truth of all. Do you believe it? We can only have the power to live like Jesus lived when we trust what he did. Imagine a community of people that lives like this. Men and women who would speak the truth in love, who would give to the poor, who wouldn't retaliate when wronged, who would bless instead of hurt. Supernatural. Impossible without without the help of the Holy Spirit. So he's exposing our hearts to reveal that we need new ones in this series. Sermon on the Mount makes us realize that we must be born again and receive a new heart. So if you don't know Jesus... You won't get to know him by simply trying to do what he says and imitate what he does. You won't need a new heart. You need to see your inability and believe that he came to save people as messed up as you and me. If you know Jesus, trying to do what he says with all the willpower that we can muster won't work either. You know how many times I've told Kate, I'm trying. We know Jesus. We need to remember what he did for us so that you can walk in what he demands from you. Only when we remember the grace we have received can we sustain So this is what we do at the Last Supper. We remember the Lord's Supper. Excuse me. We remember what he did for us on the cross. We celebrate his resurrection victory and the fact that by faith we are united to him. So, eat and drink remembering that your past, present, and future sins are forgiven. Trust him. And eat knowing that he's alive. We're going to eat with him again. And that we, by faith, have been united to him. We live in his resurrection. So we can live the kind of life he's called us to live. Because we've been raised with him.
Jesus, now is always and ever. Matthew 26, 26 and 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. Father, we say thank you. Loves you and loves us. Help us to do the same. 